Hello and welcome to the Kids Media Podcast. I'm Andy Williams, MD and Creative Director at Vaminos, and my co-host is the brilliant Joe Redfern. Hi, I'm Joe Redfern, Global Brand Director, and in today's episode, we are talking about the world of animation and specifically the future of UK animation. We'll be chatting about topics like the impact of new technology and the challenge of moving from service provider to IP creator. But before we do, Joe will be having a chat with Steve Henderson to tell us all about Manchester Animation Festival. Over to you, Joe. So before we meet today's guest, I'm delighted to introduce Steve Henderson, who is the CEO of Manchester Animation Festival, fresh out of their seventh uh, year this year. And he is going to tell you how you can uh, enjoy the rest of their content on demand. Steve, welcome. Now, tell us about Manchester Animation Festival. Well, thank you, Joe. Thanks for thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, Manchester Animation Festival is now in, had its, just had its seventh edition. Uh, we've been doing the festival since 2015. We presented our first ever hybrid edition this year for obvious reasons, uh, which was fantastic because last year we did everything fully online. And this year we were able to welcome people back to the cinemas, but also give those who don't feel comfortable going to the cinema or going out the opportunity to watch everything they want at home. So if people are still interested in catching any of the international short films, the features, if people are interested in catching any of the masterclasses or panel discussions or anything else really from Manchester Animation Festival this year, uh, they can do so by going on to manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk and picking whichever events they want to watch. We've had some great guests this year, not least yourself, Joe, taking part in Animated Answers, uh, which was one of our fantastic industry day sessions where we invite people who are not necessarily animators, that, but people that form a huge part of the animation industry and infrastructure. And so it was wonderful having you on to talk about brand uh, and to give people an understanding of, of brand. Uh, so that was part of our industry day. We also had Patricia Hidalgo, Director of uh, Children's and Education for the BBC, who announced that uh, they're going to triple spending on animation, which is nice. It sounds nice on paper. Uh, and we also had uh, lots of fantastic things. We did State of the Animation Nation with Animation UK uh, as part of our industry day. Uh, we also did In the Frame with Screen Skills, part of a upcoming survey on disability in animation that's coming out very, very soon. And that was just our industry day. For the main festival, we had guests from Netflix talking about Robin Robin. We had Jorge Gutierrez and Sandra Akiwa, the directors and creators of Maya and the Three, which is on Netflix. We had Disney's Encanto. We had... Ron's Gone Wrong. We had The House, which is an upcoming Netflix production. We had so much. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's, there's only you've only got until the 30th of November to uh, engorge yourself in this all-you-can-eat buffet of animation goodness. Uh, so that's there until, uh, until the 30th of November on our viewing platform, manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. That's fantastic. And uh, it certainly has been a jam-packed schedule, uh, having just taken part in a relatively small part of it, but having seen just how much stuff that you've put on, uh, it's certainly been crammed full of interesting content. And I think you're probably going to need a lie down in a darkened room sometime soon, aren't you? So as we wrap up, I will ask you about plans for next year. I'm sure 
it's probably on your radar uh, after a little bit of a rest. What can you tell us about plans for your eighth Manchester Animation Festival? Oh, blimey. I, I wish I had a crystal ball to see if, uh, if, if the world's going to be back to normal. We thought it would be back to normal this year, but obviously it wasn't. We hope to be fully in venue next year. We hope to sprawl across the city uh, and make it more a, a bigger affair. In fact, that was our plans for 2020, but... Uh, you know, the coronavirus turned up and uh, uh, scuppered uh, not just our plans, but everybody's plans. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we're hoping to be in venue. We're hoping to be bigger and better. Uh, but also throughout 2022, we're also doing events, monthly events uh, in, in venue. So we're hoping to connect with our audience a lot more and show more animation throughout the city in 2022. So people can find out more about that by subscribing to our newsletter or staying on our social media, which is at MCR Animation on Twitter or Instagram or uh, TikTok. Uh, we're also on Facebook as well. You just search for Manchester Animation Festival and you'll find us there as well. We're also on LinkedIn. Uh, so join us on LinkedIn too. Brilliant. Well, I certainly look forward to staying involved with Manchester Animation Festival. Hopefully you will have me back next year. So congratulations uh, on a successful delivery of this year's festival. Uh, and we look forward to seeing what Manchester Anima Animation Festival goes on to do in future years. And congrats to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the podcast. And yes, I will see you at Math 2022, Joe. Thanks, Joe. And thanks to Steve. Now, we're really fortunate to be joined by two illustrious guests who are both leading figures in animation in the UK. Could you both give a brief intro for our listeners? Starting with you, Lindsay. Um, so, hi, my name's Lindsay Adams. I am the founder of Daily Madness Productions. We're a 2D animation studio that's based in Dublin, Ireland, and now moving into the UK, um, up in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Um, our studio focuses very much on being a champion for diverse voices in the animation industry, particularly promoting women both on screen and behind the scenes. My name is Tom Box, co-founder of Blue Zoo Animation. We're one of the uh, UK's leading animation studios who specialise in a lot of children's content. We're making shows like Adventures of Paddington and uh, we've uh, and shows like Number Blocks, which are our own IP. And we also do 2D shows like It's Pony. So doing lots of different things. We do a lot of uh, uh, initiatives in trying to kind of push the industry forward. For example, uh, initiating, setting up the, the UK tax reliefs back in 2007, I think it was. And more recently, working with lots of outreach campaigns and including our own things such as we've now I think the first animation studio in the world to be B Corp accredited. So which is kind of making sure that we have a, a positive impact in the world and not just saying it, but making sure we actually do. So it's, uh, yeah, we're based in London, but obviously at the moment now spread out over everywhere. Thank you. Well, we're really pleased that you've joined us on this episode of the podcast today. So we'll jump right in with our first question. Uh, and I think we would all agree that animation is enjoying a boon at the moment, not least uh, in that the streamers have identified animation as being a big draw for subscribers. So with that in mind, how have the streamers changed the market for animation, uh, in, in your opinion, Lindsay? And then we'll come to you, Tom. Well, I think definitely for me, um, the biggest change has been the type of content that we can go out and propose and pitch now. I think when we were still linear, 
we were very much boxed off with certain types of formats and certain types of stories that you could tell on TV for limited spaces. But having streamers now has very much opened that market up so that we can move animation outside of the traditional kids market and into a variety of different um, storytelling genres. So that's been an exciting thing for us at Daily Madness. And how about you, Tom? What changes have you noticed? Um, certainly with things like durations as well and not being tied to those old traditional broadcast ways of delivering content? Yeah, I think for, for us, it's a lot more of a bigger picture thing uh, in terms of there's, it's fantastic that there's this huge amount of demand and this arms race for content. But then that causes problems when there's a, a finite supply of everything um, in terms of uh, from artists to, um, to to the actual audiences where, you know, most of our productions, when you're, when you're, when you're a studio that generates IP, it's, you know, when you actually raise funds to get a show made, you're, you're, you're never making profit from that or the profit comes later. And then with this booming content means the viewer's time is much, much more fragmented and any, any show's life is much quicker because there's another show coming out the next month, which means the, the whole business model of an animation studio is, is a lot uh, trickier because there's that, there's much a higher kind of churn rate of shows. So it makes it in some senses, having the opportunity to make that runaway success is easy to get it funded, but then is it harder to actually get that runaway success if it's kind of shelf life is, is shorter because there's the audiences are so fragmented. So I think there's, you know, there's, there's uh, immense pros and quite a tricky cons to try and get around, but you know, it's, you, you can't have it both ways. That's interesting. I just wanted to pick up on that. Do you think that the, do you think the streamers then have a different attitude in terms of um, their kind of timeline for shows? Do you think they're more likely to drop a show quicker than a broadcaster or um, or do you think there's no real kind of difference in that respect? I think that they probably have, most of those decisions are data-driven. So they can have a lot more kind of uh, quicker uh, feedback on whether whether a show's a success or not, where maybe with traditional broadcasters that they, they leave it longer to tell that, but um, possibly I don't know. Um, so it's um, yeah, it's 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 interesting to see how that that will develop. I think in terms of how how when you get shows out there, it's uh, there, there's a lot going on out there, which like I said, can can work both ways. And and in terms of pipelines, I know you are a pipeline specialist, Lindsay. So has this, you know, talking about the speeding up, has that affected your pipelines, this, this increase in demand and also the expectations from streamers? Um, it has and it hasn't. When it comes to our service work, I think that's why people come to us most, because we know how to do a fairly fast pipeline um, and deliver an end product. When it came to our own IP, actually, I found that when we're dealing with the broadcasters and the streamers um, directly, they've actually been pretty flexible with us and they've let us determine our own timeline within a certain degree, as long as we've been very, very straight up front of how much time we need. I haven't felt a lot of pressure myself, but in from the service side of things, 100% people have came to us purposefully because they want something a little faster. That kind of brings me on to the next question, which was about the impact of new technology um, and kind of stuff like real-time rendering. How, and Tom, I'll come to you for that answer first, but how is new technology really impacting the production of animation at the moment? 
think in it's it, it it kind of depends on what you look as new technology. I think it's one interesting thing. I think in terms of where we are now, that if if people couldn't be doing work on their own kind of PCs with internet, the, the industry would have imploded in the last year kind of with with kind of remote working stuff. It just wouldn't be possible. So I think now it's, it's interesting now that we have kind of workers spread out um, over the world uh, and so forth. And that's that's enabled that. What what real time and and that that speed up of working means that the the you can you can push much higher quality uh, for budgets you might not have been able to do previously and i think that's what kind of excites us is that it's it allows you to do much more and it allows that kind of creative iteration um to so you can achieve what's what's in your mind uh, a lot quicker as a studio we're we're kind of investing money in r&d for um doing more um uh, use utilizing real-time technology for um, kind of digital puppeteering as well, because we really see one of the issues is at the moment, there's this huge demand for content. For example, YouTube, you have to have a certain th- uh, kind of throughput of content to, to make those channels sustainable and 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 to, to work with the algorithms. But most people's ways of doing that is just by doing very cheap content, which we don't really have an ambition to. We want to be kind of proud of the the content we have from many different perspectives. So we're looking at ways of using um, kind of real time technology to make that animation that's really high high quality, but means we can actually keep up with the speed of the world, which animation hasn't done traditionally. So it's really trying to um, trying to trying to make sure that we're keeping up with the world and not um, not sacrificing what we're we're proud of the kind of the, the work we make from that. When you talk about the YouTube situation and the real time, Reddit, do you, is there? Do you think there might be kind of a possibility that you can look at almost live animation within that setup? Um, for sure, and I think there are, there are companies that have done. That. I think. Um, there, there are some examples of kind of more kind of live puppeteered animation. For us, we veered away from that purely because you what what doing something. There's only so much uh, translation you can get by capturing uh, a human, then transplanting it onto a, a cartoon character, without feeling like uh, a, a theme park kind of character mascot with a human stuck inside it, and it's and it sometimes can err on the creepy side quite easily. Uh, where we've got so much kind of uh, nuance and cartooniness we want to bring in that you the simply the human body can't can't perform. So what we're looking at is is doing kind of developing our own technology where we can actually kind of layer that animation up. So we call it kind of nonlinear puppeteering. So we layer up uh, the animation in real time so one person can puppeteer different parts of the body. Um, uh, and that still means you can make uh, an animation in a very short amount of time. Each per you just you're just working puppeteering one part of the body at a time and building it up that way and we found that's been a, a a nice compromise in trying to be cartoony but making puppeted content that has a different very much different purpose from keyframed animation which we're we're, we're very you know we're, we're which is our, our core business model we're not looking to disrupt that we're just using animation uh through the digital puppeteering that previously we just we just couldn't for the from the budgets available there Interesting. That I mean, that that almost resembles the Jim Henson model because you'd have, you know, you'd have somebody wrangling the arms, and then you'd have somebody mm. puppeteering the face, um, and that each person would have a different kind of area that they'd focus on. Yeah, so it's very much that, but allowing one person to look at the one man band of puppeteers, kind of thing, having them. So one person being able to to to, to emulate what 
you know, what five people crowding around a puppet would, would we have to do in, in reality. Amazing. Um, and then over to you with the same question, Lindsay, in terms of the impacts uh, on new technology for you in, t- in terms of animation production. Yeah, I mean, I don't have half as much uh, research as Tom does there, to be fair. We haven't used a lot of it in the studio. I mean, we're still a fairly new studio, um, but I've done, I've been asked a few times um, on service gigs and when I've came in as consulting production for things like motion capture. And and it's kind of very much the same sort of style where you'd have somebody in their get up in their suit and then get the, the quick animation that way. And again, it always needs that level of touch up because I think animation, um, that's kind of the heart of what we do anyway. You want to be able to push human motions and and push those actions into the animation space. Otherwise, why bother doing it in animation? Um, but we're always very, very open to it. We're also in a co-production at the moment with the studio that's really pushing the real-time rendering. And I just watch that with absolute fascination. Um, there's definitely some interesting challenges, I think, um, in the future of technology at the moment. Amazing. Well, one final question on that as well. Tom, you mentioned about um, new technology being, you know, how working from home has been accommodated and, and made possible. Do you think the working from home situation would have, how would it have worked even like four or five years ago? Do you think it would have been difficult to, to have had that situation then? Yeah, I, I don't think we would have been able to do it. I think we would have been in a very similar situation to live action and stop motion where things would have had to just go on hiatus for, for a while because the you know we just didn't have the, the, the internet bandwidth to enable people to, to work collaboratively. I think it, things would have happened a lot more slowly. I think over the duration of the pandemic, work has slowed down as people have tried to figure out uh, better ways of collaborating when they were used to just tapping each other on the shoulder. And we've we've seen a definite um, impact of of that, especially when it comes to kind of onboarding new staff and the time it takes them to get up to speed. Um, but I think it's yeah, it would it would have been a much scarier process than we fortunately did uh, uh, have when you know over the last two years. I want to come on to looking at that um, wider industry, actually. And you mentioned it at the top, actually, Tom. There's various industry incentives that you've been involved with in your career way back um, regarding tax incentives with Blue Zoo several years ago. But you're very active in the industry as a whole. What's the current status with various industry incentives? What's exciting you? What's frustrating you? What you know is there regulation, or is there anything that you think is um, either helping or hindering UK animation at this moment? I think for us, the biggest problem we have is with uh, the talent pipeline. Obviously, with the changing political landscapes, it's meant that all studios are really kind of suffering when it comes to having having access to talent pools they were previously over-reliant on. Um, that now that it's a lot harder, which, which you know, I know studios are uh, missing deadlines through talent shortages from the, the skills councils I've, I've been on, uh, which is a, which is a huge problem. So I think there are great incentives, uh, you know, uh, uh, initiatives like the apprenticeships. We're now getting a junior animator apprenticeship starting in the new year. But then that's it makes it a lot 
there's still uh, a lengthy, huge amounts of bureaucracy involved in that. When I think the the quickest thing would be for to have ways of easing kind of work placements that could be subsidized because it's easy to say, oh yeah, all studios should just pay for more kind of work placements, but studios work on pretty thin margins to be able to say, you know, have all of these people come in. You've got to all the time in your studio, have a few people uh, doing, doing work placements and those need to be paid. Otherwise it's, it's being, uh, it's kind of not helping inclusion and social mobility. If the only people who can do it are the ones who can afford to live, live off their parents still. So I think there, there could be a lot more done regarding um, helping subsidizing kind of placements in uh, in studios to to help more people get into industry to help grow our domestic talent pipeline, which help grows our industry. I think all studios doing their little bit. I mean, we do plenty of um, internship paid internships, but it's nowhere near the amount we do, and there's nowhere near enough studios doing that because it is. There's at the end of the day, studios just can't afford to do it that often, and I think that's where I think what would be the the easiest way to solve that problem is just getting more people into studios to see how it really works, less of the, the theory and more practice. And, and um, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about women in animation, Lindsay, but before we get to that, just picking up on what Tom has said, have you had similar issues in terms of finding resource and particularly given that you're outside of London, you mentioned that you know, your base, you, you, your studio is split between um, the Northeast and Dublin. So is that something that you've felt even more acutely even? Yeah, so we're, um, to be honest, the Newcastle studio is just myself still up here. The majority of my crew were all down in Cardiff um, in terms of the UK. We're going to have a very, very slow growth over here in the UK. Um, I think there is problems with hiring across the board in Europe as well. I think there's a huge amount of demand for animation at the moment and studios are busier than they've ever been, which is wonderful, but it does mean there has been a bit of a staff shortage. So we're looking at lots of different out of the box kind of thinking of how we can bring in more more um, crew and more staff on a much more kind of a slow burn. We don't have the same turnaround as Blue Zoo would with 200 people. So we're really, really happy that for, for the, the UK base, we're only going to really go up to about 15 by the end of next year. So we can be quite select and bringing people into the Northeast and training up um, talent here in the Northeast, I think is a really exciting prospect. I think there's a lot of people who learn animation up here and then they have to leave and go to London to get the jobs. So we're hoping to be able to build a bit of a base so people can can come out of the, the local unis here and actually stay here, which will be wonderful mm. when we get and, to And so point. going, I mean... You, you mentioned how inclusion and diversity is really important to you in what you do and in your studio. And again, I know you're very passionate about creating opportunities for women in animation. Just tell us a little bit about how you've gone about doing that and how you would like that to change in animation in the future. Yeah, so I graduated from um, Teesside University with a degree in computer animation in the early 2000s. And at that point, it was quite a big course, but I was one of the very, very few women on the course, as you know. Um, and I think coming through the last kind of 20 years working in the industry, you notice 
a lot of women being very, very um, keen to follow creative paths, but sometimes falling to the wayside through historic biases and everything else. So we've came up with a few policies internally that we're launching ourselves. Um, one of them is called the First Credit Internship, I mean, the First Credit Initiative, um, which is designed to help women achieve that first credit in a leadership role or that first credit within a production. And it's just making sure that we're opening up those positions so that we can create more female directors and more uh, women heads of department. Um, and we've also followed that with the launch of our new second act internship, which is trying to encourage um, people who have been previously moved away from creative careers or taken a particularly long career break back into the industry. And that's a, a living wage um, internship for anyone aged 35 and over. Brilliant. Um, is there anything that Blue Zoo do in terms of, um, I know you've got various initiatives um, internally, Tom. What is there available within Blue Zoo, Blue Zoo that's new that promotes that diversity of voices and perhaps women in animation? Um, it's a good question. We're always trying to think of new ways of, of doing that. I think part of the thing is uh, being aware of what uh, your studio is doing. I think a lot of studios might say, oh yeah, no, we have a nice balance. Then you actually look at the numbers and they've been biased in their perception of what that balance is when they, you know, is 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 too easy to do when you look at her, you know, and you try and remember who's in your studio. I think, oh yeah, I think we've got a fair balance. When you actually see the stats, it's like, no, it's, that's, that's not where it needs to be. So part of that is what we've done with um, the B Corp process we've been through, where it's measuring not just measuring every single thing, but constantly checking to make sure all those numbers are going in the right direction. So you can actually see where, where you need to work. So it's for us, it's, it's about measuring that change as, and being aware of it uh, to make sure that what we're doing is actually effective. And it's not just paying lip service to, to saying, Oh yeah, we're, 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 we're doing this and that. Um, so it's, it's trying to uh, embed it in our culture as well and we feel like that's that's been working quite quite nicely i think where we do have a, a gender uh balance 50 50 gender balance in our studio um but for us it's 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 much more about just trying to embed it in what the studio is rather than trying to do it as a uh as a uh kind of a, a target to meet or as a uh uh as a, a kind of a, a number to, to meet um, where what where we saw is if if we if we have a, a nice uh, a, a nice culture but a positive uh, encouraging studio environment and and address the, the the root in terms of making sure that you're kind of getting the, a balance of applicants in then those numbers happen through what you're doing rather than trying to force them through um, uh, quotas and and so forth which can work. In the, which can backfire in the big picture rather than trying to address the root cause of it. So we've been kind of doing a lot of stuff with, you know, trying to uh, do schools outreach and stuff to, to make everyone know that this is a, a, a job that is suitable for, you know, for from all backgrounds and, and genders and ethnicities to really try and do it at a grassroots level. Uh, but then that is, it doesn't, like, like you say, Lindsay, it does need to be done at every level in terms of CPD to make sure that there is not just making sure there's a balance coming in. So making sure that balance then continues all the way up. And the, the, the research says that now there seems to be much more of an equal balance coming into the industry. 
but there there isn't still like like you said at, at the top in terms of directors and uh and and the more senior roles i think that there is a lot more work to be done there that's interesting and i think you're right that kind of it's as much a a, a challenge to kind of change cultures outside of companies as well to just just so people realize that that opportunity might be for them whereas they might have not considered it before yeah knowing it's a viable career is half of the battle like I said I wanted to work in animation since I was four years old and all the way through school I was just told it wasn't a career choice for someone like me and I think yeah trying to to figure out how to do that I think has been a, a bit of a challenge but hopefully we're getting towards and, it. And how has that worked in terms of going out to schools and having a meeting kids and kind of giving and um, showing them that animation is a kind of viable career? How, what's your experience been both of you in, in that respect? We, and so we did that um, as part of Women in Animation Island um, in Dublin schools. And we found that you have to try and get out there just before um, kids turn about 14, I think, um, just to make sure that before they start making all of their career choices and things. Um, I also did a, um, a session with the Children's Media Conference this summer where we were actually talking to graduates as well who may have just gone through the university experience but might actually be thinking about pivoting in careers um, just to invite them to uh, an online session and tell them what the options were. I think just visibility of, of the types of roles, you don't have to be able to draw to be in animation. There are a gazillion roles in animation that, that are required to make a TV show. So even if you're an accountant who likes TV, there's a job for you in this industry and just trying to make sure that everyone's kind of aware of all of that. Um, I was just going to say that with my, with my, uh, Animation Skills Council hat on. One of the things that we've been trying to do is push a, a back to schools initiative, which it has been hard over the last um, over the last eighteen months, two years. When obviously it, a lot of that is about trying to physically go back to schools, and obviously schools are still not quite in that place yet. So, but the idea of that is um, there's funding available to to help uh, you know with either expenses of helping people travel and there's a, a presentation deck that's age appropriate for that younger kind of year seven kind of age group um, in terms that we can then give to uh, artists especially the younger age artists to then go back to where they grew up not necessarily their own school but so they uh, a young kind of fourteen year old can can see that person was in my town or my school. Um, you know, 10 years ago, and now they're working on this amazing project, this Marvel film that I went to see at the weekend, and now they're doing that. And it's also trying to connect the skills they're learning. Um, from our experience, we're, we were chatting to um, some school children and saying, oh, that's great, you learn Python. What do you, what do, you do with Python? Because it's part of the national curriculum. And they're like, oh, we, we build websites with that. And they're saying, well, did you know that every single kind of VFX heavy feature film is all built on top of Python? And they had no idea. So I think part of it is educating teachers in terms of these mod more modern career paths that they may be behind on. This is very hard to, to know everything in terms of where these things can lead to. So it's working with career advisors to, to let them know what the, the skills they've really enjoyed can relate to things they might not have presumed, but then spend all weekend kind of enjoying so it's it for us it's all about connecting the dots and trying to facilitate that getting people out to schools so they can really uh have that kind of that see it be it mentality of of getting schools and connecting those those dots in many ways so hopefully we'll be 
was, was going to say, hopefully we'll be announcing more of that and getting more studios involved next year, especially as schools, going back to schools becomes a little bit easier. So hope people keep an eye out on that initiative. Brilliant. Yes, I was I was just going to follow up and, and say it's, it's, it's interesting because teachers are increasingly teaching things like Python and, and coding and, and technological things, but don't necessarily know how they are applied. And like you say, I think it's really interesting. You know, it's it's the same with um, things like augmented reality or virtual reality. Teachers are getting access to this stuff, but they don't necessarily know how to use it or to articulate to kids what they might use that for in the future for for jobs. Like you say, they might learn the basics of Python, but they don't know that that could actually make an animation. Um, they're just being taught what Python is. And I think that it's it's important to try and get to that next stage because that's really what brings it to life for kids. That's the light bulb moment, as you said, Lindsay, that go, you might like marketing. I'm a marketing person. I started off in banking and moved into kids entertainment, not knowing that those jobs even existed in kids entertainment. So it's, it's a similar process. Our final question, we're kind of shifting gears um, a bit here, is to ask you both about the challenges of moving, um, of having to kind of have a service provider hat on and then switch hats to an IP creator hat. Um, Do they require quite different kind of skill sets um, and, and a different kind of point of view? What's the... What's your kind of experience of shifting from being a service provider to an IP creator and back again? Um, Well, I mean, first of all, we really do love service work. Um, So Daily Madness, we do service work, we do our own IP, and we also do co-productions. And the reason we want to stay across all three is because we have a very particular point of view and tone of voice when it comes to the type of shows that we develop. But we love all types of entertainment and all types of, of animation. So we want to be involved in, in stuff that we would never come up with in-house. Um, when it comes to service work, there's always a knowledge that it is not your baby, that you're providing some a service for somebody else and you want to make sure that, that their vision is captured in the most uh, efficient way possible and that you're delivering it um, on time and within their means. So it's an awful lot of detective work while you're trying to figure out how to do that in the best possible way for your client. Um, whereas when it comes to doing our own IP, um, we find that we're able to be a little bit more um, brave and a little bit more experimental, maybe um, in terms of the way that we produce it. We think that that's a really important part, not just what ends up on screen, but the way that we actually get to that point. Um, so we tend to take a little bit more risks when it comes to our own stuff because we're so well, it's our stuff, it's our baby. We want to make it the best way that we can. And I think that's kind of been the the joy of being able to do both our own IP and service work each year um, so that we can get to stretch both of those muscles in different ways. I think you also need, one of the differences, you need thick skin and deep pockets because it's, it's a different beast. I mean, we like we, we try and have a, like a 50-50 balance between uh, the service work and, and doing our orig- own originated yeah. IP because it's, doing both has the risks uh, and obviously the payoff in your own IP yeah. can be much bigger, but it's it, at the same time, it's, it's like trying to win the lottery as well, getting that runaway successful show that, that, that you can um, retire early on. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've been describing it as extreme gambling over the last few months while we're trying to get Gold Girl up and running. It's terrifying, but it's really exciting it's, at the same time. Um, it's, it's, and it's hard to yeah. know when, if you've got a, 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 a 
a whole bunch of IPs and you're kind of like going around all the markets and stuff of when to let some of them go because it's 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 like kind of uh you know having a having a baby and it's like you've nurtured for years and saying it's just it's not going to fly we've we've tried it but then sometimes something that's been collecting dust on the shelf that it can come around again as as times change so it's is sometimes I think that's one of the hardest things that that kind of sunken cost fallacy of going. We've put an enormous amount of time into this. We can't, we can't mm-hmm. give it up, uh, and that's very, very stressful when you've put a lot of money in, of of your own kind of uh, of time, money, and and blood, sweat, and tears into a project, and it's just not getting picked up. It takes a lot of um, confidence and determination to keep going. Going right, okay, well, let's come up with a new show and a new idea, and that's very hard when with service work, someone's coming to you with a project and saying, we've got this amount of money. It needs doing by then off you go. Uh, you find it that easy, but <laughs> effectively uh, compared to <laughs> having a blank canvas and going, we can make anything, which is quite a daunting thing. So you have to have, a, you have to have great vision and focus to be able to pull that off, to go from that blank canvas to a successful IP. Interesting. And when, when you talk about the service provider stuff, do you still find that there's a challenge in being able to, because ultimately you're making it for another client, but you still want to preserve kind of your creative identity within that. Do you, do you kind of work hard to kind of to have it still look, you know, that it kind of looks identifiably um, a animation that's come out of your studio? Um, well, for Daily Madness, um, not really. We'll always we'll always take on the vision of the the service provider if they've got a, a vision, and we'll only take on things that we think are suitable for us as well. Um, one of the clauses in our um, agreement is that we need to be able to find a role to promote a woman on the on the show, and if it's a fifty two episode run, then we need to have our first credit director, shadow director, to take one episode. So that tends to be the way that we keep the, the Daily Madness theme of it um, in there. But we're, we're quite happy to have the challenge of trying to meet somebody else's um, vision um, and making sure that we're, we're delivering what it is that they, they see fit. And then uh, another follow-up question on that is you're talking about the risks of IP creation uh, versus service provider stuff. Do you have a... Do you have an idea in mind in terms of what is too much time to be spending on IP creation versus the service provider stuff? Uh, do you have a way to kind of balance that out or is it more just kind of through instinct? We've uh, got, uh, we've now got kind of an allocated amount of budget we spend each year on developing. So we go this year, we're spending X amount of money. So I'm going to hire these these people. And so we we don't get caught in that loop of, uh, feast or famine which is easy when you're running a your own service thing where you're you're busy 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 can't focus then suddenly that service work runs out you've got nothing so then you focus on the ip and then you're worried about no more service work and it, that's a horrible existence so we try and uh invest in a team constantly developing ip so we're, we're not in that kind of that roller coaster position as much uh, as long as we can help it because uh, it's it's a tricky one fabulous um, right, let's. Uh, I'm going to give you both a chance, actually, to um, make some recommendations, if you like, and it can be one of your own animations or uh, something that you've seen out there in the market. But I'd like to know, firstly, from you, Lindsay, what animated properties have you seen lately 
that excite you? Is there something that's caught your eye? Oh my gosh, I need to, I know this weekend I need to watch this arcane thing that everyone's talking about on Twitter. That's very, very exciting. Um, and obviously the new series of Bluey is coming out, which I just will watch continuously. <laughs> so those would be my um, my my two for the for the rest of this year that I'm going to be viewing. Brilliant. How about you, Tom? Um, similarly, well, I, I, I don't get a chance to watch much animation so I, there's never enough hours in the day uh, with so many things going on especially with the amount of content that's coming out but i'm so a lot of the animation i see is from my kids and in the similar uh, vein to to Lindsay, it, it's bluey's where it's at it's such a beautifully made show uh, on many levels and i think it's it's a show that we can all aspire to yeah, such great characters. I love all of the characters in that show. Well, I have to say, I agree with you wholeheartedly about Bluey. It's awesome. So that wraps us up for today. Thank you very much for joining us, both of you. And we do hope that you will tune into the next edition of the Kids Media Club podcast soon. If you enjoyed the podcast, Please rate this episode and subscribe to the series. It would be enormously appreciated. And thank you very much for listening. We really hope that you tune into the next episode. Bye.